Hello and welcome to our podcast today. You can find our podcast in audio version on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and video on YouTube. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating too. In today's episode, we are looking at the heroes of the journey of racial reconciliation and justice. Make sure you turn in. I'm sure it's going to be a great podcast. Good morning and welcome to our podcast, Just Us. I want to welcome you and I want to um, welcome um, two guests that are uh, guest panelists that are here today. Um, you've On previous podcasts, you've heard John Brunt, pastor and professor and author. And today we have with us uh, Randy Maxwell, pastor and author. And we have a good friend of mine, and we also have Almonds, another good friend of mine, who is a very thoughtful young man, uh, a high school senior, and um, a very good basketball player, by the way. He can run the point and play the post. <laughs> so for our podcast today, as we think about the subject of racial reconciliation, um, it can seem overwhelming. This has been going on for 400 years and we still see evidence that things are often pretty dark. And as we, as we seek to move forward, and as we seek to be a voice for racial reconciliation and justice, it's important to keep our perspective, and it's important to have a sense of hope, and to keep a sense that God is working in this, and that we can make a difference. So today we are going to look at heroes of the journey, people who have made a contribution to the issue of reconciliation and justice. Some of them you will know, and some of them you may not have heard of. And I think that's actually a good thing, because a lot of us will, will, will quietly live our lives and make our contribution in our corner of the world where there are other people who will be well-known and will be on a more public stage. So again, um, I, I welcome you, and we're going to start with my friend Randy Maxwell, and he is going to start uh, us off with a hero of the journey of reconciliation. Thank you, Bill. Um, I appreciate being able to be on the panel today uh, with my colleagues and friends here. And uh, I'm glad you said what you said, Bill, about some of the names being well-known and others not so much, because I chose as my hero to talk about today Martin Luther King Jr., and our audience will probably say, well, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Everybody kind of goes to MLK. But as a young person growing up, I was fascinated with um, the Reverend King largely because he was so young when he got started. I think he had earned his first doctorate degree from Boston University at, the, I think he was still in his 20s. Um, and I was just dumbfounded by that and just inspired by not only the fact that he was an, an activist, but that he was intellectual. I mean, he, he, he had a gravity for learning and, and, and just absorbed um, education and um, he 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 put his um, what do I want to say his money where his mouth was. I mean he mm -hmm. he gave his life yeah to this cause. He didn't even reach the age of forty 
And um, the things that he said, I, I, I guess what inspires me about Dr. King was the fact that, and not a perfect man by any stretch, um, I, I don't think he ever claimed to be. I don't think he ever claimed to be a perfect man, but um, it was the fact that he, his methodology, he was inspired by Gandhi and his uh, principles of nonviolence. And he wanted to adopt that same strategy um, not only to get the point across about the inequities and the racial injustice, but he wanted to awaken the conscience of the American people, and especially the religious community. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, the racism was allowed to flourish lar in large part because the Christian community had remained silent. That's right. And so by adopting the methodologies of Jesus and putting prayer and, and peaceful marches and, and that in the forefront, his strategy was to awaken the Christian sensibilities yeah. of the nation that would inspire them to rise to their better selves. Yes. To let them know that America is better than this. Yes. And to remind us of what the American dream, what the American ideal really was. And to say, hey, Let's make good on what God has given us and, and what we say we're about. Right. And um, I, I thought that was um, noble, I, and I thought it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, even today, I feel that the, really the only way to make a successful protest is to do so in the spirit and methodology of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And to, again, awaken the conscience of people towards righteousness, justice, and uh, uh, awaken them of sin. Because that's mm -hmm. what racism is. It's just a, another it expression of, of sin. That's right. So, And there were a lot of people, even though MLK kind of was the face of the civil rights movement during that time, there's a lot, a lot of people whose names some of us will never hear of and know who also um, paid uh, the price yep. for the fight and who were very instrumental, very influential in their circles. I mean, most people I didn't know, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, that he was one of the speakers at the march on Washington and was the youngest speaker there. I didn't know that. He was the youngest speaker on the platform that day at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, I think he was in his 20s as well. And here you see his long and storied career yeah. of being a, uh, a fighter for civil rights and, and for justice. He was beaten yeah. on the bridge, on the Edmunds Pettus Bridge. On the Edmunds Pettus Bridge, which one day I hope they rename after him. I would love that. Um, but, but yes, and so you learn about all these heroes um, during that time who had something bigger to live for than just themselves. and uh, So that, that, that's who inspires me. So let me ask you this, um, and, and to any one of the panelists here, um, when you think of the pressure that our country was under during that time, how bad things were, 
if we wouldn't have had Dr. King, yeah. how much worse could it have been? Yeah. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think it would have been much worse, and yet, ironically, at the time, everybody considers King a hero now, but at the time, he was vilified. Um, his approach was not appreciated. That's right. And yet, um, That's right. without it, things yeah. would have been so much worse. I've got to tell you, can, can I just disclose this right here? If you talk to my, my parents, my mom and dad, um, and they were in California. They weren't in the South. They were in California. There were a lot of blacks who wished uh, MLK would not agitate. They, they, the, the, the feeling of some blacks was that you're causing trouble for us. <laughs> yeah. You're rocking the boat. You're rocking the boat. Later, there was the appreciation for what was done and the sacrifices that were made and whatever. But you have to understand during those times, it was not good. Yeah. And there was a lot of fear, and, and you didn't want undue attention. Yeah. And so it, the efforts weren't always heralded, like you said, John. You're absolutely right. And that's not only from the white community, that's from the black community as well. Almonds, as a high school, as a high school senior, what does your generation, how, did, how does your generation perceive Martin Luther King Jr.? I think overall, I think everyone always looks at him as like civil rights movement. Like, of course, because I mean, he was Martin Luther King. But I think, I think kind of what you said, the aspect that I don't think that they really look about is for me one thing. One thing that I appreciate about most of the people, especially Martin Luther King, that were in like civil rights movements or did things where they were under persecution for what they believed in, I think all of them understood the concept of if you want to be able to do something great, you have to be okay with not being liked, you know? And I feel like yeah. that's a lot of things that pe people struggle with that a lot, especially when people always think that, oh, yeah, I could be a leader and it's not going to be hard. Like, or they, sometimes they, they forget that in the time when you're reforming or you're rebuilding, everything, people are going to hate you, people are going to stab you all the time. Like the person I was going to talk about, she had a rock thrown in her in her house, and it was like, and it was like this. It was a rock this time, but dynamite the next time, like things like mm. that. Like you have all kinds of like death threats and all kinds of things, mm -hmm. and people don't necessarily understand that being in those positions is not very easy. And so sometimes I think we look at leaders or people in the civil rights movements, and we only we see what they did as good, but we don't always pay attention to the amount of struggle or the work that it took, you know? And that's a big thing for me, for especially even translating it to basketball, because sometimes people will look at me and say, oh, he's so nice, but they don't see the work that I put in, you know? Yeah. And so I translate, I translate that yeah. to the same thing. Yeah. But I do still think that people have an appreciation for him. I wouldn't say that people are always thinking about him like, oh, Martin Luther King, but I do think that he's usually the main one that people, because there's always like the three, like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. Like those are the ones that everyone looks at mainly. Yeah. And but I do still think that overall now people people always have an appreciation for him, appreciation for him because, like, he's one of the main reasons that we can all be together right now. You see what I'm saying? So 
That's right. That's that's kind of what I think about. That's right. So what do you think of a, um, what does it tell you that in this battle for justice, in this battle for racial reconciliation, that people were willing to kill, or like you said, throw rocks or dynamite to maintain the status quo? From a spiritual perspective, what does that tell you? That it is a spiritual battle. <laughs> that it is a spiritual that battle. Is, it, yeah, the bottom line, it, it's not black and white. It is um, good and evil. It's good and evil. Yeah, that, that's what it is. And, and if that's the case, that, uh, that people are willing to, to kill, or, or I think of what you said, um, Almond's uh, dynamite. You know, for Dr. King, I think of that he was willing to risk not only his life, but his children's lives... Because he could have backed off when they bombed his home. He could have backed off and just stopped. You know, I can't risk my kids. But he wasn't willing to back down. So what does that tell you about the urgency of this problem being addressed and healed? Yeah. I definitely think that's insane. Like, personally, <laughs> that's just me. Like, you have to have a, you really have to have a certain type of Something has to be on your heart so strongly for you to be willing to say they can, but not that you would want that, but there's a good chance that they could come up to your door and kill everybody in your house. Like there's, there's a different type of, of weight on your heart that that kind of brings for you to be able to look through past that and say, you know what, I need to do this right right now and I need to fight for it and keep going, you know. So when I look at that, I also think that in that time, the problem had to be extremely bad for yeah. you to be able to for you to be able to to push through that because I think I kind of look at it like that there was a time when everyone just like accepted it or they let it happen kind of and then it got to a point where they decided like this is too much or there was those core people that mm-hmm. decided this is too much like this is like wrong like even just as a basic human my basic principles this is completely wrong and so they had to decide yeah. that I have to step out so I just think in that time the problems must have been like crazy like because I don't know this is that's just really it has yeah. to be extreme for you to be able to, to push through that and just decide that even if whatever happens I'm still gonna fight you know yeah, yeah. I think that uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of a statement that I that I grew up with and it was like I'd rather die. I'd rather die standing up than living on my knees. Something like that. Yeah. And what happened during the '60s is that the pain of the status quo, the, yes. the pain of staying the same, yes, was greater than the pain of change. Yeah. Um. Wh- whatever. Um was required uh, to, to um, affect change was not as bad as the pain of living the way they were, living in that situation. And uh, usually that's when things change. Yeah. Um, we, we, we pretty much can tolerate um, a lot of nonsense um, until it becomes unbearable. Yeah. And I think that it had reached that point. And, um, the, the, you know, the times, if you think about, 
the 60s, man. I mean, you know, you had Vietnam going on. You, I mean, yeah. you had a lot of things yeah. coalescing um, that, that, that were agitating, and, and there was a need for change. And uh, these are the people who put their lives on the line to do it. And I, I mean, Fannie Lou Hammer, you know, she, she got beaten. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of people who really gave it their all. And <laughs> I, I think the reason why it's so amazing today and we look at it and we say, man, that's just crazy, is because we're living in a time right now that's highly um, self-focused. <laughs> I mean, you know, in comparison, everybody is kind of out for themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, this was a time when people really came together for the greater good. Yeah. We, we, we were going to do sac- make sacrifices for a whole generation of people, not just what may be in my personal right. best interest at the moment. Right. And um, that, that, you know, that's extraordinary. I think, I think one day, too, I think it's changing even now, but I think uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, one day, he's going to be viewed differently. Yeah. He's going to be viewed differently. Um, because people will begin to appreciate what his protest was really about and what it wasn't. Right. Um, So um, these are are great people to remember. When I think think of Dr. King, um, I, I heard a phrase once that really stuck with me. You can't fight a spiritual battle in the flesh. And that's probably, for me, the biggest takeaway I take from him is, like you said, Randy, he went after the conscience. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, let's pick up clubs and guns and let's go. He said, we've got to awaken the conscience. Because you think about it, if if you and I have a dispute and instead of listening to each other and negotiating, working, it's like, okay, I'm going to hurt you or kill you to win the argument that shows a level of brutality and a pride that somehow that had to be broken. So for him to, like he said, the, the, the marchers had to face the police dogs and the, the whips and the, um, the uh, batons and the water cannons, and that for America to see that, it would waken the conscience, and, and it did to a degree, Mm-hmm. Um, and we're continuing. Uh, we're continuing today. So um, much respect to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, again, I think if God would not have raised him up, I think we would have had incredible bloodshed in our country more than there was because the pressure was something had to give. <clears throat> and right. fortunately, and, and I guess the last thing I would say about that is that he was a leader. And that's one thing I wish we had today. I wish we had leadership um, yeah. that people could rally around who were voices of reason, uh, not accepting the status quo, but, but um, fighting the problem in the spirit, right. uh, getting yeah. at the heart of it, the, right. the root of it. Um, we are going to transition, John is going to tell us about someone I had never heard before. So, John, please. And I think most people probably haven't, and you probably haven't either, but a very interesting figure. If you go to Los Angeles and drive down Western Avenue in the south part of Los Angeles, near the L.A. Coliseum, 
You'll find a big building with its parking lot. It takes up a whole city block, and it is a public health center that serves the poor in South Los Angeles with free and low-cost medical uh, services. It's called the Dr. Ruth Temple Health Center. And most people who go there, I'm sure, have no idea who Ruth Temple actually was. She was born in 1892, granddaughter of slaves, daughter of the pastor of the largest African-American Baptist church in Natchez, Mississippi. Grew up in a very nice home. Her uh, father was a prominent, not only pastor, but author and scholar. Had four younger siblings. And then when she was 10 years old, the day before her youngest sister was born, her father died suddenly of a heart attack. Mm. And her mother went into a deep depression, was unable to function, and Ruth became the mother for her four younger siblings at age 10 mm. and pretty well reared them for a long time. There was one incident that set the course for the rest of her life. One of her brothers was playing with some explosives and it blew up in his face. And his whole face was bloodied and he was screaming. And her mother, as soon as she saw him, ran the opposite direction and screamed, he's blind forever. Ruth instead ran to him, got cloth, cleaned off his face, put pressure on to stop the bleeding. He didn't go blind. And she decided that day she wanted to spend her life helping to heal people. She decided she would become a nurse. She said later she never knew that women could be doctors, so that's why she thought she'd become a nurse. Wow. But said she was really glad she hadn't become a nurse because nurses have to do what doctors tell them, and she said she was too wild to do what anybody told her <laughs> to do. Um, the family moved to Los Angeles, and they became Seventh-day Adventists. She was a very good student, and a group of businessmen in Los Angeles invited her, because she was such a good student and they had heard about her, to speak to them. And they were so impressed with her, and she talked about her goal of becoming a doctor, they decided to finance her to medical school hmm. and to pay her whole way through. And in 1918, she was the first woman of color to graduate from the medical school that was the forerunner of Loma Linda University Medical mm. School. Mm. She later taught at that school and was, as far as is known, the first woman of color ever to teach white men in a medical school. Wow. She started practicing in the southern part of Los Angeles and just had a heart for the poor and wanted to do all that she could. She was a very excellent medical practitioner. Single for quite a while, said that there was no, she was too wild for any man. And uh, several people proposed to her, she told them no. Finally, there was this fairly well-to-do real estate developer who fell in love with her and asked her out on a date. She said no, she was too wild for any man. He said, I'll take you on a wild date. And she said, ah, oh, sure. So they got together another couple, and uh, there were five of them all together. And he took her up a canyon 
out of the San Fernando Valley into a narrow little road through this canyon, and about halfway up, she said, this is wild enough, I want to stop. He said, no, no, you said you wanted wild. <laughs> and so <laughs> they ended up getting caught in a flash flood, and she decided he was wild enough, and they got married. <laughs> now, because he was fairly well-to-do, they decided that they would fulfill her dream which was to start a free medical clinic in the south part of L.A. to serve poor people. And so they sold their house and bought a lot there. All it had was a chicken coop, nine feet across. And so they lived in the chicken coop while the house was being built that would serve as their free clinic and also the place for them to live. However, by the time they got the house done, they had so many people coming to the free clinic that there was no room for them to move in. So for two more years, they lived in the chicken coop out in the back mm. while she served people in the house. Her husband once said that most physicians, when they see somebody, begin with empty pockets and end with full pockets. But she would begin with full pockets and end with empty pockets and then go back to him and ask for more money to give her patients to mm. take care of them. Mm. Um, she decided that she wanted to make a difference in the way people took care of themselves. And so she started what she called health study clubs. And she would get people together and she had a curriculum for them to learn how to take care of themselves and things to do for home remedies and to stay healthy and best health practices. And she started places at, for instance, the University of Southern California, ended up with almost a thousand people joining her health study clubs. And uh, she started a health week, a community health week in Los Angeles, and they gave her Pershing Square, which was the big um, public square right by the Biltmore Hotel, and it eventually filled up the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel as well. She got famous people to be the uh, uh, grand marshal or whatever for her... Uh, for her community health week, including before he was president, Ronald Reagan. And she did some unorthodox things. Uh, the diphtheria vaccine had come out and it was not reaching the African-American community in South Los Angeles. Children were dying, lots of babies were dying of diphtheria. So she also started these groups with kids. She got the parents' permission. So she called her, one of her kid groups together and said, now there are a lot of babies dying and they don't have to because there's this vaccine, but the mothers aren't giving them to you, giving them to the babies. Why do you think they're not? And the kids said, well, probably they don't know about it. She said, I think you're right. Why don't you go tell them? And so she got a whole cadre of kids going out telling mothers about diphtheria and ended up saving hundreds of babies. Uh, by her group of kids. Innovative. Yeah, very innovative. Some things were even a little more unorthodox. There was an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, and they seemed to trace it to one nightclub. And so she decided she would go see the owner of that nightclub. And he said, well, why don't you get up and talk to people? She said she was scared to death said she had talked to a thousand people lots of times and public speaking didn't worry her, but she looked at that group and 
They were all drinking, and she had never had a drink, and they were all smoking, and she had never smoked, and they were all gambling, and she had never gambled, and they were all doing other things that she wouldn't even mention, and um, scared to death, but then she decided, you know, they're just people, and they need help. And so she got up and spoke and actually started a health club out of her uh, time there at the uh, nightclub, and... The owner of the nightclub started a program where he would give a free drink to prostitutes who would come in and get tested, and they cut down the STDs in the area by over 90%. Wow. The county of Los Angeles was so impressed with all that she did in public health that they sent her to Yale University. She was already a physician, but to get a graduate degree in public health, and then she did a lot of work for the county. In 1983... When she was over 90, they decided to name the health center after her. And then the next year, in, in 1984, she died. And as I say, people who go to that health center today probably have absolutely no idea what an amazing person this Ruth Temple that it's named after was. Just to add a personal footnote, I uh, grew up in the Glendale City Church. She was a very active member in the White Memorial Church, which is an Adventist church down in Boyle Heights, California, only about seven miles away. And she used to come to our church and give health lectures. And I can still remember her as a boy. And I, I thought she was a little strange, actually, because here is this little, she only weighed 90 pounds. I mean, she, she's a powerhouse, but she weighs 90 pounds and quite a lecturer. And uh, she would come and she always wore a community health uniform. So the picture of this uh, small African-American woman with her uh, public health uniform giving lectures in our church. Uh, I can't remember any of her lectures, but it still is an image that I have in my mind from growing up. Never knew, of course, as a boy that I was watching an icon. John, what is it, or, 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 or uh, the rest of you on the panel, what is it about her and her work and her life that we can that we can use an example and that makes her a light, uh, a light in a dark place on the issue of racial reconciliation and justice. What are you hearing? Seem so large and so overwhelming that, you know, I, I know I do. I feel like, oh, I can't. what can I do? I can't do anything about that. And uh, here she was using um, a lot of common sense and then what was available to her, whether it was children or whatever, to um, get information to where it needed to be and to make a difference and to help in the lives of these people. And so that, that inspires me that we, we all can do something, you know, mm -hmm. And uh, what, what seems to be um, maybe start out small impact has far-reaching uh, mm -hmm. ramifications. And, I, and I, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. So what, what you're describing, John, I, I see these places in my mind because I grew up um, going down Western Avenue, and I know exactly where the Coliseum is. In fact, the church that I was baptized in is uh, located just... Uh, a couple of, of, of long city blocks 
from there, the University Seventh Avenue Church, which is on the corner of uh, Budlong and uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. And um, so I, I have a picture of all of these things, and um, just to think that there, there were people like that um, fighting the fight and, and making a difference. It's very inspiring. What do you think, uh, obviously she did a huge amount of, for the health and, and leading the community. Mm-hmm. What do you think her contribution was to racial reconciliation and justice? The way she lived her life, what do you think she did for that cause? Well, I think making known the fact that there are people in that kind of a community that are making a difference and that really want to better mm-hmm. their whole community. Mm-hmm. And she, was rec- she, she, was, she received recognition from four different U.S. presidents. Mm. She became quite uh, well-known in the political circles of uh, California. Pat Brown, who was the governor came and worked with her on a couple of those community health weeks, for instance, and as I said, Ronald Reagan later. Um, So people were able to see that here is someone who really wants to make a difference and see their community thrive. Amen. And in the area of justice, she saw the disparity with the diphtheria vaccine, mm-hmm. she saw the disparity that the African-American children were suffering disproportionately. Mm-hmm. They were not getting access mm-hmm. to um, the medication. Mm-hmm. So she stepped in to mm-hmm. make a difference, to, to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that's one of her obvious contributions in the area of rac- racial mm-hmm. reconciliation and justice was to help that disparity mm-hmm. and, and close the gap between those who had access and those who did not have access. You wonder if young um, black children were inspired that, wow, I could do something significant. Mm-hmm. I could use my talents to make a difference and be a leader. Um, and you wonder if there were some some maybe some white folks who who looked down on on blacks who were who had to take a second look and say this is an outstanding person who is gifted and intelligent and is making a difference you wonder if um if she didn't if, uh, inspire and change the atmosphere in some ways like that yeah i'm i'm sure that's the case yeah 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 john i i I, when I go to Los Angeles next, I'm going to have to go and, 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 <laughs> and see that place and take a picture. And, and um, I, it's, it's really fun to hear about someone you know, we, haven't, we haven't heard about. Almonds um, has someone he's going to tell us about. Uncomfortable. Let's keep that. <laughs> so my person is actually Daisy Bates, and she's also not one of the most well-known people, you know, because I mentioned earlier about how there's always the the people up there, and then there's the people in the backgrounds. She was still like a strong leader, but she's just not exactly a popular name. So she actually had a very rough uh, upbringing. Like her story, her story started off so she was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, right? And then when she was like an infant. Her mom was raped and then murdered by three mm. white men. Mm. And so, I mean, 
that's not the best thing ever, you know? And so ever since that day, or ever since she found out that something like that happened, you know, her, her mindset changed and she had an immense amount of hate, like just, just anger, you know? Because of course, like why wouldn't you want to have anger, right? And then I was reading about this and her father actually told her something that really resonates with me and I feel like it resonates with the time right now. Um, she said, um, it's okay that you, that you can hate them, but don't let your hate be wasted. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna hate, do something about it, you know? Like channel all that energy into making a better impact, you know? Because I feel like a lot of times um, something that we could do or this is something I feel like just me being an African, African-American and just like the people that I'm around, we tend to hate a lot. And because of course there's this injustice and everything. I just want to be careful how I say this because we tend to hate all the time, but sometimes we don't necessarily do something about it. Like sometimes we tend to just, we just use our mouth and say, oh, they're doing this to us, oh, they're doing this, oh, they're doing this to us. But then we don't necessarily decide like, oh, we're gonna try to do this or trying to step out or when we see them doing something wrong, then we correct them. Or if they, if they say something else, we don't like it, we, we stand up to them and say something. You know, sometimes we just like to push out and say, they did this, they did that, they did this. And so that really resonated with me um, when her father told her that. So ever since that day, she decided, you know what, I'm gonna figure out something I could do, um, whether, it, whether just whatever I could do to be able to make a difference, then let me be the one to do it instead of just, to, uh, just saying it. Of course, she was still mad, but she channeled it. And so later on, her and her husband actually started a newspaper. And the newspaper was one of the only newspapers at the time that was focusing on the civil rights movement. And so it just kind of just talked about the whole thing going on, everyone's different thoughts, and that was, that was just their main, the main thing that she was known for. And then, of course, I bring up the dynamite thing again because um, this is, this is um, something that happened. I think they released an issue, and, of course, it was super contra- contradictory. And then they got a, a rock, and then on, they attached a piece of paper on it, and it said, this was a rock this time, but next time it's a dynamite. Threw it in a rock window, like... If that was me, I mean, I would right. stop. Like, you know, like just right. me and myself, I would be like, all right, I might have to cool it down a little bit. But another thing I admire, admire about her is she wasn't um, a very strong, uh, she wasn't soft-spoken. So at the time, it's kind of weird when you see someone get up there and you wouldn't expect them to have authority. Because I feel like sometimes they looked at African-Americans back then as like, Oh, you're just a slave. What are you doing up there? Kind of, or things like that. That's a little extreme, but things like that. And so the way she went up there and carried herself, she carried herself. She didn't, she didn't ask. She told, she didn't, she didn't um, back down. She always, she stood up there. She stood her ground and she said what she needed to say. Like, no matter what, she wasn't like, she was like, oh, they threw this. I'm going to back down and be soft. She always kind of just, she, she almost strong-armed them a little bit. Like, she always, she was just like a rock, you know? Like, you're not going to mess with me. I'm here. A lot of courage. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because it's one thing to go up there and say anything, but that say, then also say it the way she said it, kind yeah. of, you know? Because that's also two different things. And so mm-hmm. she always, um, she, was, she was strong about what she said. And so people were always like, like, who is she? Like, who do you think you are? First of all, like, how are you going to go up there? One, this is already your, what you're saying, and then you're going to say it like that. So people were obviously, like, thrown off. And so that created more, more turmoil and built everything up. 
And then, so I think, I think because of her newspaper, she got more recognition. She became the president of the NAACP at mm-hmm. one point. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she did that. And then another thing that she's known for is in the education world, she really fought for integration of blacks and whites in the same schools. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it was 1954, Congregation, uh, the Supreme Court um, said that it was uh, unlawful by the Constitution that mm-hmm. schools sh- that schools shouldn't be mixed or whatever, you know. And so, she was kind of part of that of that movement. Mm-hmm. And then there was I really can't remember the school, but there was a school where she selected nine. It was they called them pupils. She selected nine nine students, nine students to be the first students to go and be integrated into school. And I remember, this is another thing, like just some of these things are crazy. The governor of Arkansas actually said, if those kids get into that school, they'll be blood in the streets. Like if the governor said that, like, and you still push on, you know? And yeah. so she was kind of really strong on that, on that movement. And she worked with them all the time, brought them, into, brought them into her house. And even those kids in general, you know, like you guys are the first ones all, you're going into school of all um, yeah. white people. And then also another thing is in that situation, I think I'm a very believer that you're not necessarily a product of what you were raised in, but you have, there's an influence that your family has on you. Sure. So if your family it has this sort of view towards African-Americans, then obviously to some respects you'll have the same similar view. And then you have this whole entire school going and then it's nine versus like, I don't know, a couple thousand or something, school. And so you're going in there, you kind of feel alone or whatever. You probably constant things getting attacked at you. So you know, even those kids are, are brave themselves. But she worked with that a lot. And then she kind of started, um, she was a, kind of just like a head in that integration of, of students into school, you know? And so those are kind of just the main things about mm. her. And I kind of just, the, the biggest thing that I... I guess learn. Mm-hmm. I feel like we all should learn is be doers, not necessarily just just pointing out everything that's wrong. Because right. when you point out everything wrong, you're not doing anything. And once again, we're all not perfect. Because of course, we like to point fingers, but then we don't point it at ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something just in this whole thing from both sides. Because I do understand that there's there's a problem with racial discrimination and everything that is going on. I do believe that that is true. I'm not trying to say that that's not valid or anything, but I also believe that we have a part to play as in, I feel like we sometimes like to point too many fingers instead of try to fix. So that's kind of just where I stand and that's, that's um, why she stood out to me the most. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Almonds. That's, that's um, I like the, ver- the practical rubber any any reflections from John or Randy to um, B- Betsy? Um, uh, Daisy. 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 Daisy Bates. There we Daisy go. Bates. Daisy Bates. Any any had had you gentlemen heard of her? I hadn't heard of her before. I have not. <laughs> any any thoughts on 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 what Almond shared? Well, I I was impressed by what her father told her. You know, ch- channel that energy to making a difference and doing something good. Um, and she, and she took it to heart. And the fact that she was able, like you said, to speak and, 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 to, and to be forceful about it, you know, 
and, and not back down. Um, that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage. And um, I'm kind of like, with you, man, if I get a rock thrown through my window, <laughs> I'm likely to kind of like, okay, all right, I get the message. I don't want, I don't want dynamite next time, <laughs> you know. But uh, again, incredible courage yeah. to be able to do what's right. And um, I think about those, those nine kids who had to be the first. What they had to put up with. But they had to put the up The indignity with. and the... Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's tough. I, I remember, again, seeing um, documentary films about how the civil rights leaders would train the protesters to um, uh, break into, like, the lunch counters and things. Yeah. And, and how they t- told them what was going to happen. Yeah. And, and how to respond when it happened, you know. Right, right. Because, of course, they were going to be pushed. You know, somebody, you know, throws food on your face or something. They're going to be spit on whatever. and... You, 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 naturally, you're going to want to... Yeah. Right, right. But they, they trained them how, how not to do that. And I'm thinking, Lord, what kind of people were these? Yeah. What kind of people were these? But they were the kind of people that the Lord needed at that time to make the kind of impact yeah. that would necessitate change. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very inspired by Daisy. It's also a reminder of how glibly whites will often complain about the anger in people of color without realizing yeah. how deep those hurts have to go when you hear that kind of a story. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. It's easy to be glib when you've never had to face those kinds of hurts right. <laughs> just because right. of who you are. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Because, and that ties into what you were talking about in terms of today, you know, we have a lot of hate, you know, a lot of haters, a lot of rage. I find that you're absolutely right. There are a lot, there's a lot of, if, if there was a word that I would use to characterize 2020, besides fear, would be rage. And there's a lot of people in the streets um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's not race, it's politics or whatever, who are um, enraged. Right. And I, and I think, really? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you look at some of the things that people are enraged about today as versus generational oppression. Right. And see, and, and, and you want to minimize the anger in a group of people who have been systemically oppressed. But then, you know, your candidate doesn't get elected or, you know, you know something minor. And, and then you want to explode in rage. It's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about some equity here, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think everybody needs to kind of take a step back. I think it's easy on one level, to just, like you said, be angry and just throw a lot of hate and stuff out there and then look at, you know what, how can I make a difference? How, how can I make a difference? Um, it, it doesn't do any good to just right. throw out a lot of hate, a lot of rhetoric and talk and whatever. It's like, 
yeah, let me, let me do something to further humanity, you know? I also wanted to add to something um, that you were going to say. I also don't think that making a difference means um, you got to be like Jesus or something. I think that a lot of people kind of take that point of view. Or I also don't like that. Some people feel like they need to now fix the problem. Like it's on them that they're that it's their duty to be some sort of savior or something like that. I think that some of these, these making a difference in this situ- specific situation, I think it's, um, it's a heart problem. That's what I feel like. I think yeah. that it's, this, this whole thing isn't going to go away until people in themselves decide to do better by themselves, like their own person. Because if, if everyone decides, because can, I can't make you change. I can't come up to you and be like, you need to do this, and you actually change. You and your own heart have to be able to change. That's right. And so I feel like until people decide to make that decision where I'm going to make sure that me on my own, in my own personal relationship, what I believe, I do right. I respect people. Like, people are all equal to me. I'm not necessarily putting one higher than the other. She feels like I want to be treated. Until each person by themselves decides, starts to do that, I don't really feel like this will go away. So then I think... By making a difference, there's one thing about making a difference and going, like there's things that you could do, but it's also like a very huge part of it is in yourself. Like you need to that's be right. able to personally that's decide right. to, you know, that's just what I wanted to add. That's right. You think of the psychology of, of that kind of behavior of throwing bricks or dynamite to intimidate people from being able to experience basic freedoms and basic rights. You think of a high school, if you had a traditional bully who put a, a smaller child in, in, in a locker or stole their lunch, whatever it is, the psychology of the bully is often self-loathing and insecurity. But you think of the, of the spiritual psychology of that I'm going to enforce what I want to the point of killing you or hurting you. That's what brings to mind the, the evil of racism, the darkness of the soul, what it did, and, and how that has impacted. America's a wonderful country, but that's been a problem because that happened a lot. Now, we're going to transition to the last person, and I'm going to talk about uh, Ruby Bridges. And she's a hero of mine, and her... Um, her story comes to us when she was six years old. And as Almonds uh, referred to, the Supreme Court ruled that it was uh, unconstitutional to have separate schools. And yet it wasn't until 1961 there was a school in New Orleans. And she was going to be the first uh, black student. So where there were nine in Arkansas, they were going to do start with one. And they were going to start with a little first grade girl. And... Um, we've all, you can go online, Ruby Bridges, Google it, and you can see pictures because for her to go into the school, she had to have armed federal marshals to get her safely in and out of the school every day. Now, I'm just going to stop and and ask you to think about that a minute. What has happened to a culture in the Bible Belt when for a little, beautiful seventh grade, six-year-old first grader, she has to have armed guards to go to school. Mm -hmm. 
that tells us something about the, about what happened to the soul of our country during that during that time. Um, she was, um, and you could I, I would suggest you go on and Google pictures of Ruby Bridges going to school because there's a picture of the crowd, and this crowd would gather outside the school every day to throw rotten tomatoes at her, to scream at her, to threaten her. Um, there's one lady there holding a coffin with a little black doll inside with the clearly implication, we're going to kill you. Mercy. Um, <laughs> and probably one of the most alarming was this lady just kept crawling out, we're going to poison your food. And so little Bruby, being a little six-year-old girl, was traumatized by that and she wouldn't eat. And so finally her mother said, look, Ruby, I, when you eat at home, I fix your food, your lunch, I pack your lunch so you can eat your food. And um, all the students in, all the parents in first grade pulled their white students out of class and sent them to another school because they did not want their children with this little beautiful six-year-old black girl. So her teacher taught her by herself for most of the year. Now, there was a, a psychologist from Harvard University named Robert Coles who was studying stress. And he thought he was down, um, and he observed her, and he thought, she has to be really stressed. Because if, if people picketed me going to work and threatened to kill me and screamed at me and cursed at me and threw rotten tomatoes, I mean, you, you've seen... Um, Norman Walkwell's painting, The Problem We All Live With, with the rotten tomatoes splat, splattered on, you know. And so he observed her, and there were two things that struck him. The first was, as she would walk by the crowd, her lips would be moving. And the second one was, as with the permission of her parents, as he interviewed her, she wasn't stressed. After the poisoning thing was done, mm -hmm. she wasn't stressed. She wanted to have other kids to play with. I mean, you think in school, having other little kids to right. play with. Um, and by the way, towards the end of the year, there, was, there were a couple white families who put their kid in school. Those families were endured a lot of guff too, yes. but they, wanted, they were brave enough to put their child in school so little Ruby had schoolmates to, to go to school with. And so when Dr. Coles was meeting with Ruby... And he said, and, and, and asking her, he asked her, what is it you're saying when you walk by the crowd? And this is one of the most amazing things I've ever heard because little, this little six-year-old girl said, my pastor told me that when Jesus was here on earth, the people screamed at him and they wanted him dead and they cursed him. And when they did that, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so when I walk by the crowd in the morning and they're saying bad words to me and they're, they're screaming at me, I just say what Jesus did. I say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the reading that I have done, that little girl made a huge impression on Dr. Coles. And to me... Um, Kind of what, what you said, Randy, and you said almonds, as far as she was doing something to change her world. 
but she was doing it, um, she was confronting the racism, but she was also fighting a spiritual battle in the spirit. She was over, like the Bible says in Romans, oh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's one thing I think that I, I never want to forget is we have to fight these battles, but we overcome evil with good. Um, John, you were telling me something about Dr. Coles. I had the privilege a couple times of hearing him lecture, just a scintillating lecturer. He, you know, had two appointments at Harvard University. He taught literature in the College of Arts and Sciences and child psychiatry in the med school. And he told us a story about one of his exams in the med school that I just thought was fascinating. The med students had a lounge there when they were in the hospital doing their, their clinical work. And there was a woman in this lounge who babied them and took care of them. They could go into the lounge any time. There was a place for them to lie down and take a rest. She would fix them sandwiches, do whatever to make their stay, uh, you know, a lot of times 24-hour shifts and so forth in the hospital easier. And he gave an exam then at the end of the year to these medical students, and he asked them a question that a lot of them missed. And when they came back after the, after the exam, they said, you're really not going to count that on our score, are you? You can't count that as part of a medical school test. This is this med school. It's about science and so forth. He said, no, the question counts. The question he asked was, what is the name of that woman in the lounge who takes such good care of you. And a lot of them missed it. And he said, that question counts because if you can go a whole year and let this woman take care of you and you don't even know her name, I have serious questions about what kind of a physician you're going to be. Wow. That's good, that's good discernment. So as we, as we wrap up our, our conversation for today, I want to start again with you, John, and I want each one of you to say one sentence of a takeaway, a takeaway that applies to the issue of racial reconciliation from the person you spoke about. So one sentence, takeaway. I think God uses all kinds of people to make big differences. Randy? It's a tough assignment. Um, I think be willing to stand by your convictions. Almonds? Don't be afraid of judgment if you are standing by the correct thing. Very good. And for me, with Ruby Bridges, bravely overcome evil with good. Thank you to Almonds and Randy for uh, uh, being with us today. Um, Hans and Mimi weren't able to be here, and so I uh, so enjoyed having hearing what you shared. And thank you for uh, listening to our podcast today. And we pray God's blessings on you. And we go back to the verse that is our this is our compass heading. 2 Corinthians 7 2. Make room for us in your hearts. And as we look at the issue of racial reconciliation, 
and justice. Let's make room in our hearts for other people. Thanks for being with us today.